Welcome to Madison's Notes, the official podcast of Princeton University's James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions. I'm your host, Nino Scalia. Our website is jmp.princeton.edu, and our Twitter handle is at Madison Program. It's great to have you with us. Hello and welcome back to Madison's Notes. We have a very special episode today in celebration of Constitution Day as we dipped into the archives to bring you a recording of Judge Amy Coney Barrett's 2019 Walter F. Murphy Lecture on the Constitution as our story. We'll pick up with Professor Robert P. George's introduction of Judge Barrett, followed by Judge Barrett's lecture, and a brief conversation between Judge Barrett and Professor George. So without further ado, here's Judge Amy Coney Barrett on the Constitution as our story. Enjoy. The Honorable Amy Coney Barrett is a member of the United States Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit. Before becoming a judge, she served on the faculty of the Law School of the University of Notre Dame, and she continues to teach there. Judge Barrett earned her law degree, summa cum laude, from Notre Dame, where she was a Kiley Fellow and earned the Hoynes Prize, the law school's very, very highest honor. She also served as an executive director of the Notre Dame Law Review. She was a law clerk, first for Judge Laura Silberman of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Columbia Circuit, and then uh, for Associate Justice Antonin Scalia at the Supreme Court of the United States. Uh, I heard uh, one of her uh, co-clerks at the time in a different chambers not in the Scalia chambers, uh, remark, and this was a remark made recently, I'm referring to Noah Feldman uh, of Harvard Law School, uh, that in that class of very distinguished Supreme Court clerks, Supreme Court clerks are the top law students of, of, their, uh, of their time, of their years, uh, that even among the class of clerks, uh, all of whom, of course, justifiably had high opinions of their own ability, there was universal agreement that the star of the class was Judge Barrett. And that's a very high compliment coming from any uh, Supreme Court clerk, but certainly from, uh, uh, from uh, Professor Feldman. After uh, finishing up her clerkship, she was an associate at Miller, Cassidy, LaRocca, and Lewin in Washington, D.C., where she worked with the legendary religious freedom uh, advocate, uh, Nat Lewin. She litigated constitutional, criminal, and commercial uh, cases, not only at the appellate level, but also in trials. From 2010 to 2016, she served by appointment of the Chief Justice on the Advisory Committee for the Federal Rules of Appellate Procedure. Judge Barrett is an active scholar. She has published uh, in the areas of federal courts, constitutional law, and statutory interpretation. And her work has appeared in the leading law journals, including those of uh, Columbia University, the University of Virginia, and the University of Texas. It's a very, very high honor, special privilege for the Madison program to honor as the 2019 Walter F. Murphy lecturer, uh, Judge Amy Coney Barrett. Judge Barrett. Thank you so much, Professor George, for the introduction. I am truly honored to give the Walter F. Murphy lecture in American constitutionalism tonight. As Professor George said, we share an alma mater, and so while I did not know Professor Murphy, um, I have a special affection for him already. Um, And because he was also a novelist, an author of fiction, my topic for tonight, I think, fits the Constitution as our story. What I mean by that, by the Constitution as our story, is that the story of America's history, its pivotal moments, its triumphs, and its disgraces can't be told without the Constitution. The Constitution's amendments are documentary evidence of the arc of American history. And arguments about the Constitution have figured prominently in most of the nation's great debates. That's true of slavery, of the Civil War, and the Civil Rights Movement, the topics that might jump first to our minds. But it's also true of Western expansion, taxes, war, and contested elections just to name a few of our pivotal moments. Because decisions of national consequence must fit within the terms of our national charter, 
the history of America is necessarily intertwined with the Constitution. There are many reasons why the Constitution is so central to our national identity. To begin with, we have the oldest written Constitution in the world. Not every country has a codified Constitution. For example, the United Kingdom does not. And compared to many countries that do have a written Constitution, ours is relatively short. In my constitutional theory seminar, I ask my students to compare the Constitution of Ecuador with our Constitution. Ecuador's Constitution is book length. Ours is fewer than 8,000 words, and it takes only about a half an hour to read. In fact, it's succinct enough that you can carry it around in your pocket, and many people do. For a brief period during the summer of 2016, the pocket constitution was the number two bestseller on Amazon. <laughs> the brevity of our constitution and the service of Amazon has made it accessible to millions. Keeping the constitution relatively sparse has also allowed it to stand the test of time. Our constitution hasn't said too many things in stone. It's left a great deal to democratic development. Ours is the oldest written constitution in the world because other countries with written constitution replace theirs more often. The average constitution is replaced every 19 years. We've had ours for 250. During that same period, France has gone through five republics, two empires, and two kingdoms, not to mention 16 constitutions. We've kept the same constitution with only 27 amendments, 10 of which were added in 1791. Our Constitution is truly remarkable. It's not an aspirational document, it's a legal one, and it has shaped our politics from the very beginning. Our significant historical moments are significant constitutional moments as well. They're not only bold-faced headings in our history books, but they're also black-letter sections in our constitutional law casebooks. The Constitution is an integral part of our story as Americans. Let me turn to telling you a few snippets of it. Geographical expansion has been central to America's story. We began with 13 states, we now have 50. That growth, however, has not been simply a matter of acquiring new land or admitting new states. It's required us also to grapple with constitutional questions at every step of the way. In other words, the Constitution has exerted significant influence on even the shape of our map. Take the Louisiana Purchase. There's no question about its historical importance. President Thomas Jefferson negotiated a $15 million deal for France's American colony that promised to nearly double the size of the United States, open half the continent to American expansion, and establish strategic control of the Port of New Orleans. As a native New Orleanian, I am particularly grateful for the Louisiana Purchase. I might otherwise be a citizen of France. But the Louisiana Purchase turned on more than a judgment that acquiring this land was good for the United States. Because the federal government is one of limited power, Jefferson could not act without assuring himself that the Constitution gave America the authority to acquire this land. And that was not an easy call for Jefferson. It was not an easy call because Jefferson was a literalist in constitutional interpretation. For Jefferson, if a power was not spelled out in the Constitution, the federal government didn't have it. And the Constitution did not expressly give either the President or Congress the authority to buy territory from foreign countries. Thus, Jefferson noted what he described as a difficulty in this acquisition because the Constitution, as he put it, has not given the federal government a power of holding foreign territory and still less of incorporating it into the Union. An amendment, he said, seems necessary for this. Jefferson's, however, was not the only constitutional take. James Madison, his Secretary of State, and Albert Gallatin, the Secretary of the Treasury, both argued that the Constitution's treaty-making provisions implicitly conferred the authority to make the deal. The Constitution grants the President the power by and with the advice and consent of the Senate to make treaties. 
Madison and Gallatin argue that the power to make treaties encompasses the power to make treaties for the purchase of land. Jefferson went ahead with the Louisiana Purchase despite his misgivings and despite the lack of a constitutional amendment. That is not to say, however, that he was entirely convinced. He told a friend, in the meantime, we must ratify and pay our money as we have treated for a thing beyond the Constitution. And we must rely on the nation to sanction an act done for its great good without previous authority. In other words, Jefferson decided to ask for forgiveness rather than permission. The Louisiana Purchase was never challenged in court. But in another later case, the Supreme Court sanctioned the broader view of the treaty-making power that had been championed by Madison and Gallatin. As Chief Justice John Marshall, Jefferson's cousin and political rival, put it in a case called American Insurance Company versus Cantor, the Constitution confers absolutely on the government of the Union the powers of making war and of making treaties. Consequently, that government possesses the power of acquiring territory either by conquest or by treaty. The size of America thus turned not only on a political calculation that it was good for the United States to have this territory that ultimately encompasses 15 of our states today. It also turned on a constitutional judgment. And a different judgment would have made us a much different country and a much tinier one. The Constitution has also affected our map when it comes to the admission of new states to the Union. I'll give one notable example, the constitutional controversy surrounding the formation of the state of West Virginia. Under Article 4, Section 3 of the Constitution, new states can be carved out of or formed from existing states only with the consent of those existing states. This is how we got the state of Maine. Congress admitted Maine pursuant to this provision after Massachusetts consented to Maine's formation. Congress also admitted West Virginia pursuant to this provision, but whether Virginia legitimately consented to the formation of West Virginia is a very hard constitutional question. The question is so hard, in fact, that two leading constitutional scholars have devoted a 111-page law review article to describing it. And I'm not going to get that down into the weeds, don't worry. Um, but here's the nutshell. After Virginia announced its secession from the Union, the Northwest Province of Virginia announced its loyalty to the Union. Representatives from counties within this Northwestern Province convened, declared themselves the lawful government of Virginia, given Ro Richmond's rogue act of secession. After declaring itself to be the lawful government of, of Virginia, it then gave Virginia's consent to the creation of West Virginia, which was comprised of exactly this northwestern breakaway province. Lincoln recognized the government as legitimate, and Congress did too. So Congress admitted the state of West Virginia, which immediately elected representatives and senators and sent them to Washington. One thing in this episode bears particular emphasis. Neither Lincoln nor Congress breezed over the constitutional question. On the contrary, both recognized it and grappled with it. Lincoln articulated his constitutional rationale for recognizing West Virginia, which derived from his view that secession itself was unconstitutional. And because secession itself was unconstitutional, those who were loyal to the Union in Virginia that had declared themselves the Virginia government after the rogue act of secession on the part of Richmond, were its legitimate government. That was Lincoln's explanation. Congress, for its part, debated as well, two days in the House, two days in the Senate. If constitutional constraints didn't mean anything, if everything was all politics, they wouldn't be worth debating. It wouldn't have been worth the time to engage the question. Part of our Constitution's success is attributable to our elected officials' willingness to take it seriously. The examples of the Louisiana Territory and the state of West Virginia illustrate the Constitution's hand in drawing our map. What about our economy? The United States has one of the world's largest economies. In 2018, its GDP exceeded $20 trillion. What does the Constitution have to do with it? As political officials have made decision, decisions that grow, direct, and regulate our economy, 
they have had to account for the Constitution's constraints. These constraints are not ones which those in other countries that are differently structured have had to deal. Manuel Lynn Miranda's hit musical celebrates Alexander Hamilton, our first Secretary of the Treasury and the architect of the country's fledgling financial system. The Bank of the United States was his brainchild, and it was an important tool in getting our struggling economy off the ground at the beginning. It also occasioned one of the most heated constitutional debates in the founding era. Indeed, the bank debuted in the Washington presidency, and people were still debating its constitutionality when Andrew Jackson was president. The question was whether it was a congressional power grab of a power that belonged exclusively to the states who had chartered their own banks. When Hamilton introduced his proposal for a national bank, Jefferson and Madison, among others, objected that the Constitution did not give Congress the power to charter a national bank. Article I did not expressly give Congress this power, and in the absence of an express grant visible in the text, Congress didn't have it, they argued. You'll recognize the same argument from the debate about the Louisiana Purchase. Hamilton responded that the expressly conferred powers in Article I carried implied power with them. Article I does not only expressly grant powers, but it also expressly grants powers the authority to do whatever is necessary and proper to execute them. This is Hamilton's argument. It leaves, therefore, the criterion of what is constitutional and of what is not so. This criterion is the end to which the measure relates as a mean. If the end be clearly comprehended within any of the specified powers, and if the measure has an obvious relation to that end and is not forbidden by any particular provision of the Constitution, it may safely be deemed to be within the compass of the national authority. Article I gave Congress the power to collect taxes, regulate trade with foreign countries, regulate interstate commerce, and establishing a bank, Hamilton argued, legitimately served any of those ends. Washington was convinced, and he declined to veto the bill proposing the first national bank. Years later, when the Supreme Court addressed this question in the context of our second national bank, John Marshall echoed Hamilton's very words, really kind of almost word for word. The constitutional judgment that was made first by Washington and Congress responding to Hamilton's impassioned arguments, later in McCulloch versus Maryland by the Supreme Court, which adopted that same rationale, set the, set the course for the scope of congressional power. Had Jefferson prevailed, our economy would look much different. The New Deal brought a flurry of economic legislation. Among other things, Congress regulated working conditions, set a minimum wage, and established a social security system. Each of these choices, and many others, prompted controversial, controversial constitutional debate. Here again, though, the question was where Congress got the authority to enact these measures. Congress does not have unlimited power in our system, in large part because curbing Congress's power leaves the states more room to act. The lived political experience of the 1930s and 40s involved a series of Supreme Court cases hammering out disagreements about the scope of Congress's power. In the end, these controversies were resolved in favor of broad power rather than the narrower power just as it had in controversies over the National Bank. Many of these cases involved the scope of the Commerce Clause, Congress's power to regulate commerce among the several states. That clause, the court concluded, does not simply encompass the power to regulate interstate transactions, but also permits Congress to regulate interstate activity with substantial effects upon interstate commerce. That's hugely significant for the scope of the commerce power. The debate about the scope of congressional power is not dead. It's one that we have seen quite recently. The fight over the Affordable Care Act was more than a debate about whether its health insurance system was good policy. It was also, at the time of the act's passage and in the years following, 
a debate about whether Congress had the authority to pass it. Boiled down, the question that got the most attention as a matter of the Constitution was whether Congress's power to regulate commerce encompassed the ability to require people to purchase health insurance. In the end, five justices said that it did not. The court upheld the act on an entirely different ground as a valid exercise of Congress's taxing power. Let me shift gears from congressional power to individual rights. It's impossible to discuss America's history without confronting slavery, a sin so deeply entrenched that it was baked into the framers' deal. In a despicable bargain to ensure Southern buy-in, the document counted slaves as only three-fifths of a person for purposes of apportionment, protected the slave trade until 1808, and prevented free states from harboring fugitive slaves. Abolishing slavery thus required not only a change of heart, but also a change of constitutional text. In the case of slavery, the moral debate could not evade the constitutional debate. And so for a hundred years, efforts to eradicate slavery involved constitutional arguments that were urged on both sides. The arguments against slavery finally triumphed when the Constitution was amended after the Civil War. The provisions protecting slavery were purged, and the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments were added. These amendments abolished slavery and protected civil rights. Slavery would no longer be an issue on which we would permit national disagreement. There could be no dissent. Equal protection was enshrined in the Constitution's text once and for all, though living up to those words would be a different matter entirely. Indeed, living up to the promise of the Reconstruction Amendments put the Constitution center stage in the 20th century, when the Bill of Rights was incorporated against the states. Before that time, the Bill of Rights only applied against the federal government. So in other words, you had no free speech rights against the state of New Jersey. That changed in the 20th century when the Supreme Court said that the 14th Amendment, one of the Reconstruction Amendments, the Due Process Clause, applied these guarantees to the states as well. And so now you do have free exercise rights as against the state of New Jersey. Holding the states to the same standard as the federal government when it came to our individual rights dramatically increased the Constitution's protections because it dramatically increased the surface area to which they applied. Congress also opened the federal courts to claims against state actors who violated those protections. When we think about the last hundred years, it's hard to identify hot-button issues that did not also provoke constitutional arguments. Schools segregated by race. Schools segregated by gender. Aid to sectarian schools. Abortion. Gay marriage. The president's war power. Bush or Gore. Gun control. I kind of feel like I should break out into Billy Joel's song, uh, We Didn't Start the Fire. <laughs> you get the point. You can look at a list of historical events, and I've just plucked out a few. And if you reflect upon it, you will see constitutional arguments underneath. What I've just said is only a hopscotch through American history. There's so much more I could say. What I said was just enough to be, um, to enable me to draw your attention to two themes that run through these examples. First, you need more than political agreement to get things done. Policy choices must fit within the Constitution's system of power. And it is worth pausing to think about the nature of constitutional constraints. They're not a matter of majority rule. They're a matter of supermajority rule. They were adopted by a supermajority, and they cannot be changed without a supermajority. That, in fact, is the very point of a written constitution, to prevent democratic majorities, through their elected representatives, from disrupting our fundamental governmental structure or violating our most fundamental individual rights but there is a cost to hemming in the government. Government actors have to identify the boundaries of their power 
and there is often heated disagreement about where those boundaries are. Without this supermajority check of our written constitution and its limited powers of the federal government, Jefferson could have made the Louisiana Purchase without any constitutional hand-wringing. Hamilton could have delivered the bank easily without decades and decades of constitutional hand-wringing. The Affordable Care Act would have been purely a policy question and not a constitutional one. Franklin Delano Roosevelt and the New Deal Congress could have enacted their reforms during the Great Depression without a hitch. Second, in America, moral debates often become constitutional debates. The Constitution gives us the ability to place individual rights beyond the reach of democratic majorities. Because we have the Constitution, this fundamental supermajority law, we can tell democratic majorities that there are some things they can't do. They can't touch our free speech rights, free exercise rights, a right to a speedy criminal trial, that is an awesome protection that our Constitution gives us. And we shouldn't give an inch on it. The problem is that the strength of that protection can be an incentive to turn every moral debate into a constitutional debate. And that is unhealthy. So I'd like to pose this question. Is having this supermajoritarian law that hems the government in and that's hard to change a good thing? There's no denying that it makes governing harder. As you listen to some of the stories that I recounted, you might have wondered whether it makes sense to add constitutional considerations on top of policy ones. Would it be better if Congress were free altogether to just pursue good policy? During the Rehnquist years, the Supreme Court held that Congress lacked the power to enact a statute entitled the Gun-Free School Zones Act, good purpose, keeping guns out of school zones, and the Violence Against Women Act. Both of these acts serve laudable goals, keeping guns away from where they might harm children and protecting women from violence. Given that these goals are laudable, why wouldn't we want Congress to simply be able to enact them without worrying about constraints on the scope of Congress's power? Similarly, if Congress operated without constitutional constraints, it could more easily specify and enforce principles of morality and human rights through legislation. Think about the trajectory of our country in terms of slavery and universal suffrage. National rules guaranteeing those rights required constitutional amendment. In Great Britain, however, slavery was ended by legislation, and simple legislation gave women the vote. Because the British don't have a written constitution, these national reforms did not have to clear the hurdle of constitutional amendment. The debate was moral and legal, but not constitutional. A full defense of our written constitution obviously lies beyond the scope of tonight's brief talk. But I would like to highlight one value of our constitution, one of its features that I think is underappreciated and I think serves as a defense for some of the costs that I've just identified. Federalism, the division of power between federal and state governments. Much of constitutional law including many of the examples that I've highlighted today, involves a decision about when to have a national rule and when to permit regional difference, when policy choices can be left to local variation. That may be a matter of determining when Congress has the authority to impose a national policy through federal legislation. That's the debate provoked by the National Bank as well as the Affordable Care Act. Or it might be a matter of determining not just when Congress can act through legislation, but when the Constitution entirely precludes states, or for that matter, the federal government, from adopting a contrary rule. That's the choice that lies behind the debates about slavery and universal suffrage, and in our own time, gay marriage and abortion. One way to think about this question is this. Why do states matter? There's a lot to talk about here, 
But let me give you a couple of thoughts. A moment ago, I compared us to Great Britain. But there are important differences between the United States and many of the other Western countries to which we often compare ourselves. Just think about size and population. The United States has roughly 316 million people and covers 3.8, well, 3,800, no, sorry, my, uh, I need my reading glasses here, 3.806 million square miles. Canada has more land, but a significantly smaller population. It's 35.6 million people and about 3.8 million square miles. The UK has 64.1 million people and 94,058 million square miles. France, 66 million people and 247,000-ish square miles. Germany, 80.62 million people and 137,903,000 square miles. Thus, the United States has more than three times the population of any of these countries. And while many European countries are growing more diverse today, the United States has historically had and still has more diversity of race and religion. Think about what a feat it is to keep such an immense and diverse people all under one roof. Indiana citizens have things in common with the citizens of New Jersey, but they also have different preferences, sometimes on things that matter intensely to them. Mississippi is different from California. Nebraska is different from Florida. Allowing regional differences expressed through state and local governments enables this large and diverse country to get along. The 300 million plus people in America do not all share the same moral beliefs or political preferences. The trick lies in deciding when to allow regional differences and when we need a national rule. We are, after all, not simply 50 states, but also one country. There have to be some fundamental commitments that unite us. Some of the commitments that we have made have to do with the structure of our government. Others are about the rights that are non-negotiable in the United States of America. Our greatest constitutional tragedy is that the original Constitution made slavery negotiable. The founding generation was incapable of agreeing on a national rule of abolition, and the Constitution permitted, indeed protected, southern states and slavery. South Carolina, a slave state, was permitted to make a different choice about this fundamental human right than Pennsylvania, a free one. Freedom for all should have been fundamental from the very beginning. Instead, it took a civil war and three constitutional amendments to secure it as a national rule. There is no doubt that the prohibition of slavery and forbidding racial, racial prejudice must be non-negotiable rules protected by our supermajority. These are not matters on which individual states can ever make a contrary choice. The same is true of the 19th Amendment, which gave women the right to vote on the same terms as men. This, too, deserves its place as a non-negotiable rule in the United States of America. It's not something on which individual states can dissent. That commitment to equality is one that unites us as Americans. There are obviously many more guarantees in our Constitution that properly impose national rules reflective of fundamental commitments that we must share. But there are other commitments that ought not rank as immovable national rules, either because they're not sufficiently fundamental or they're not widely enough shared. Let me give you an example of a value of a moral commitment that failed as a constitutional rule. Prohibition. The Constitution is difficult to amend. It's therefore somewhat surprising that twice the American people were able to amend the Constitution regarding the sale of alcohol. The 18th Amendment outlawed the sale, manufacture, or transportation of alcohol in the United States, but it lasted for only 13 years. 
The 21st Amendment allowed individual states to decide whether to be dry, but abandoned any attempt at a national rule. The 18th Amendment stands as a cautionary tale about the demand for national rules rather than local rules. We are a very large, very diverse country. And federalism, the division of power between state and national government, is one of the things that enables us to stick together as a nation. Constitutional rules leave no room for local disagreement, and they bar any ability to bring about change through Congress. For that reason, Americans ought to resist the temptation to resolve every moral and political question through the Constitution. It's easy to see the attraction of going that route when you're committed to a principle. If you are convinced that your position is right, it's hard to appreciate the value of disagreement. That was true of the temperance movement. Members of that movement were bent on making abstention from alcohol one of the things that unites us all as Americans. The ultimate failure of that movement, through the repeal of the 18th Amendment, however, drives home the point that a country this large and this diverse cannot work if we nationalize every moral principle. The difficulty of amending the Constitution reflects the need to think hard and ensure supermajority buy-in before we hem in the decisions of democratic majorities. Article 5, which prescribes the amendment process, is onerous. An amendment proposal requires a two-thirds vote in Congress or a convention called by two-thirds of the states. And then it must be ratified by three-fourths of the states to become part of the Constitution. The seriousness of that process reflects a reluctance to impose too many national rules that hem in the political decisions of democratic majorities. To do that, a supermajority of the country must consent. I said earlier that Americans should resist the temptation to constitutionalize every moral and political issue. The difficulty of amending the Constitution checks the ability of Americans to do that. At least it checks the ability of Americans to do that by changing the constitutional text. Too often, then, <laughs> Americans turn to the courts to check the preferences of their fellow citizens in ways that the existing Constitution does not permit. It's time, then, for me to turn to the role of the courts in our story. What is the role of the courts in our constitutional story? The courts are the caretakers of the Constitution. To be clear, they are not the only caretakers. The president, every member of Congress, and every member of the state government takes an oath to uphold the Constitution. Before any public official acts, she must ensure that the action she takes is constitutional. Otherwise, she does not discharge her oath faithfully. Jefferson then had to consider the constitutionality of the Louisiana Purchase. Congress had to decide whether admitting West Virginia was consistent with Article 4. Sometimes, political actors make the final call on these constitutional questions. As I said, the Supreme Court never passed, nor did any federal court, on the constitutionality of the Louisiana Purchase or the constitutionality of West Virginia. Leaving some constitutional decisions to public officials is a feature, not a bug, of our constitutional system. That said, courts obviously play an important role in interpreting the Constitution and in protecting it. The role of the courts is to enforce the Constitution, the Constitution that the people have ratified. The people have made their fundamental, com fundamental commitments express in constitutional text. And the meaning of that text is what the people understood it to mean at the time that it was ratified. Otherwise, committing something to text means very little. Rather than making a commitment immovable, which is the point of constitutional constraint, that commitment is slippery and subject to change. It is not the job of the courts to usher in constitutional change, either by relaxing existing constitutional constraints or by adding new ones. That job belongs to the people. 
George Washington said this, the Constitution, which at any time exists, till changed by an explicit and authentic act of the whole people, is sacredly obligatory upon all. For courts to do otherwise and impose constitutional change on the people when there has been no explicit and authentic act violates the sovereignty they possess to make their own choices about self-governance. But when the people have made that choice, for example, when the people enshrined a commitment to free speech in the First Amendment, judges must hold them to it. This is the respect in which judges are caretakers of the Constitution. The Constitution is a supermajority law that hems in democratic majorities and prevents them from making political choices in the passion of the moment that would violate the more fundamental constitutional commitments that they have made. Judges protect those commitments through judicial review of governmental action. A well-known analogy that's used to illustrate the nature of judicial review is the story of Odysseus and the Sirens. Odysseus knew that he would be tempted by the song of the sirens, tempted to jump overboard to his death, in fact, to get close to them. Still, he wanted to hear the sirens' song, and so he instructed his crew to tie him to the mast of the ship and to resist his pleas to untie him, no matter how loudly he begged. That's judicial review. The founding generation... <laughs> I'm one of Odysseus's crew. crew. Um, the founding generation knew that democracy was dangerous, just as the sirens are dangerous. But like Odysseus, they embraced the journey and took precautions. Democratic majorities are sometimes tempted to violate rights. They may want to silence offensive speech. They may find it irresistible to trample civil rights in times of a national security crisis. Judges, like Odysseus's crew, serve as a check. When government officials cannot resist the temptation of trying to break free from constitutional constraints, judicial review holds them back. Judges face their own temptation, however. The temptation to use the power of judicial review to advance their own political preferences. They may be tempted to block democratic choices that they don't like, they may be tempted to refuse to enforce constitutional constraints that they don't like. And if judges fail to resist this, this temptation, they violate the people's sovereignty. Judges are duty-bound to enforce the supermajority rules of the Constitution even when they lead to results that a judge despises. And they are authorized to block choices made by the people's elected representatives, by their democratically accountable bodies, the president, Congress, state legislatures, state executives, only when the text that the people have ratified prevents that choice. That is so even when the democratic choice is politically distasteful or even morally repugnant to the judge. Otherwise, the judge is not enforcing the law as it is, but as she thinks it ought to be. For this reason, both partisanship and the imposition of personal policy preferences are incompatible with the role of judging. I'm going to start with the separation of judging and partisanship, which is a principle that emerged very early in our constitutional story. The second Chief Justice, John Rutledge, was appointed by President Washington during a Senate recess. But when he chose to make a fiery political speech railing against the endorsement of the Jay Treaty by Congress and the executive, Congress declined to make the appointment permanent. In so doing, it signaled that the judicial role, while governmental, was properly judicial, not political. Justice Chase's impeachment in 1805 brought the potential consequences of a politicized judiciary into sharp relief. Chase was impeached by Jeffersonian Democratic Republicans for making heated political statements and jury instructions. Now, this is difficult to imagine this happening today, and indeed, there's no way it would happen today. But Chase had already raised the ire of Jefferson and some in Congress by taking a leave of absence from the court to campaign openly for Adams in the election of 1800. 
Um, unsurprisingly, his politicking from the bench strengthened Jefferson's suspicion of hostile Federalist judges. Justice Chase escaped conviction in the Senate, but the episode strained a judiciary that was already struggling for legitimacy. Indeed, even before Chase's impeachment, former Chief Justice John Jay, in refusing reappointment by President John Adams, told Adams that the court lacked the public confidence and respect, which, as the last resort of justice in the nation, it should possess. Under Chief Justice John Marshall, the court steered away from partisanship, and that was essential to solidifying the court's legitimacy as an institution. John Marshall made a choice that I think captures the ideal to which judges aspire. From the moment of his investiture, he chose to wear a simple black robe. Before Chief Justice Marshall, the custom was for justices to wear colorful robes. Some mimicked the scarlet and ermine robes worn by the British judges. Others wore academic gowns of the universities at which they had been educated. On the day that he took the oath as Chief Justice, John Marshall broke with tradition and wore a simple black robe. His biographer, Jean Edward Smith, says that Marshall did so as a mark of the humility that he thought should characterize the judicial role. The other justices soon followed suit, as have all federal judges in the intervening centuries. The uniformity of judicial dress is emblematic of the fact that judges speak for the rule of law, not for the will of the individual. Our constitutional story contains examples of judges who were able to live up to this ideal by extricating themselves from partisan loyalty. For example, in the notorious case Korematsu, Justices Jackson and Murphy, who were both Roosevelt's appointees, dissented from the majority's holding that the Roosevelt, administration, the Roosevelt administration's Japanese internment policy was constitutional. Justices Minton and Clark, both Truman appointees, joined the majority in Youngstown to hold unconstitutional Truman's seizure of the steel mills during World War II. These examples reflect the independence of the judicial branch. And indeed, no judge whom I know considers himself or herself an agent of the president who appointed him. To my mind, the greatest risk for a judge is not loyalty to a president or to a political party, but to the judge's own preferences. That is what judges must fiercely guard against. As Justice Scalia used to say, something is wrong with a judge if his constitutional decisions always coincide with his policy views. No one who is being honest with himself, and I, I say this not just as a judge, I say this to everyone in the room, none of us is honest with ourselves if we think that we can look in the Constitution and have mirrored back a document that perfectly reflects our own preferences. And in this very large and very diverse country of ours, it is certainly true that no judge and none of us is going to like the democratic choices that are made by his fellow Americans all of the time. All of us will sometimes be in dissent. But not liking choices made by our, by our fellow Americans does not make them unconstitutional. And if the Constitution never leads a judge to a result that she doesn't like, she is not an honest interpreter. For example, a judge's view about the constitutionality of the Affordable Care Act should not turn on whether he or she thinks that the act is good or bad policy. The constitutionality of the Affordable Care Act, the judgment the judge makes about that, should turn on whether the Constitution permits or forbids it. A judge's role is properly above the political fray with a duty to the law before personal or political loyalties. In light of the temptation that judges face, it is essential that judges possess both courage and self-control. Courage so that they can hold democratic majorities to the fundamental commitments of the Constitution even when doing so is unpopular self-control so that they can resist the temptation to impose their personal preferences on democratic majorities. And I should add, 
wisdom to know the difference. As the great judge learned hand observed, in our country, we have always been extremely jealous of mixing the different processes of government, especially that of making law, with that of saying what it is after it has been made. Learned Hand was right. This separation protects the judicial and democratic branches of government from each other, ensuring that each adheres to its prescribed role. Key to the success of this system is the independence of judges themselves and their placement of the law before their personal and political priorities. That is the standard to which judges should hold themselves. I will conclude with words from Benjamin Franklin. After the Constitution's ratification, Franklin observed, our new Constitution is now established. Everything seems to promise that it will be durable, but in this world, nothing is certain except death and taxes. <laughs> Just as the success of our Constitution was not guaranteed at the outset, its continued success is not guaranteed now. That depends on us. That depends on Americans. I encourage you all to study the Constitution, embrace the Constitution, and demand that all government <coughs> officials, including judges, honor it. For the Constitution is the frame of our American story. Thank you very much, uh, Judge Barrett. Uh, so Judge Barrett and I are going to uh, chat for uh, just a few minutes, and then we'll have a few minutes uh, when we're uh, finished with that to open the floor for a general uh, discussion. Uh, I was struck, Judge Barrett, uh, by the complexity of the Constitution as America's story, the complexity of the story. And I can't help ob observing uh, that one uh, complexity that was brought to my mind was when you noted that there were two Roosevelt judicial appointees, Supreme Court appointees, who stood up against the Roosevelt administration for the civil rights of the uh, Japanese and Japanese Americans who were so unjustly uh, interred uh, during, the, during the war. Uh, part of the complexity of that story that's really worth bearing in mind is that the three Roosevelt appointees who were always regarded and to this day are celebrated as the great civil libertarian appointees of, just, of uh, President Roosevelt were on the other side upholding the internment of the Japanese. I'm speaking of William O. Douglas, Felix Frankfurter, and Hugo Black. What a complex story. If I would mention those three names, ordinarily, people who knew anything about uh, American constitutional history would think, oh yes, the three great civil libertarian justices appointed by President Roosevelt. But our, our story is more complex than that. And to add to the complexity, just with that one case, who requested the internment, internment of the Japanese? What, what public official said that the federal government should create the program? Earl Warren. Earl Warren. <laughs> Earl Warren. The very judge, the Chief Justice, who handed down the great civil rights decision in Brown against Board of Education. And then to make it even more complex, <laughs> who, what public figure opposed the internment of the Japanese? J. Edgar Hoover. The great villain. The great villain. <laughs> I didn't know it myself. It was pointed out to me, and I, I, I confirmed by, by, by Steve Breyer. Justice Breyer was the one who pointed that out during the visit of his to, to Princeton. So it's such a complicated uh, story, and, and, and one worth getting into the nuances and details of. And I'm so glad that you did in so many of those uh, today. Uh, an, an, another point, and let me ask you, because here's the question, Doris, that Walter would ask. And so I want to ask it at the Walter F. Murphy lecture. So I was struck, I'll bet everyone was struck by your opening remarks when you pointed out that our Constitution has been the one and only Constitution for 230 plus years. And how unusual that is. Uh, Judge Barrett gave us the, the contrast with France, how many republics 
uh, on, t on top of monarchies and, <laughs> and so forth, and, and would you say 13 constitutions or something, something like, like that? Now, I, I wonder, now, how is that the case? But if Walter were here, he would note that it might, have, it might be connected with this question of American exceptionalism. Our Constitution is kind of different from many constitutions in that it actually constitutes us as a people. What binds Americans together as a nation? It's not blood and soil or throne and altar. Not, you know, they're, they're, it's not like France at different periods in different respects. It's our shared commitment to the Constitution. So we're exceptional in that way, and perhaps that helps to explain why we don't go around changing constitutions. We can't afford to. The American people are the people constituted by this constitution. The French, they exist as the French, whether they abandon this constitution, move on to the next constitution, then another one in 20 years or 19, and so forth. But our constitution is such a vital constituting document that we would wonder who we are. There's no people independent, American people independent of the constitution to go around adopting a new Constitution. Does that? No, does that... I think that makes a lot of sense. And and one one thing that I considered saying and then just didn't for the sake of time was really kind of to this point how the Constitution in our large and diverse country, the Constitution is one of the few things that we can say we all have in common. Um, you know, it, it's our civic religion, so to speak. When you think of the Constitution on display behind glass at the National Archives and people lining up to go see it. Or, you know, we have the National Constitution Center in Philadelphia where people flock to see and learn about the Constitution and listen to podcasts about the Constitution. Um, I mean, I haven't done the, the survey, but I think we'd probably be pretty hard-pressed to find any other country in which that's the case. Yeah, I mean, it wouldn't, uh, it wouldn't be true of, uh, well, we mentioned France, but it wouldn't be true of Germany, which has a very uh, good constitution, uh, uh, a durable uh, constitution, one we imposed, basically. Not, not, true of, not true of Ireland, uh, you know, which, which also has a constitution in some ways similar uh, uh, to our own. It's got judicial review. Courts have played a very important role in the Irish story, and at least the modern Irish, uh, Irish story. But it, it does seem different. There does seem to be something central. But then, of course, that raises the next question. The agreement that binds us together, that constitution, has some substantive content, but as you pointed out, even from the very beginning, it did not include agreement on something as fundamental as whether human beings can own and use other, exploit other human beings. It's a thin and largely procedural agreement. So the question becomes, is something that thin and mainly procedural as opposed to substantive enough to keep a people together as a people in the long run. When that's the thing you've got, it's not blood and soil, it's not thrown an altar, it's this constituting set of principles enshrined in a document, mainly procedural, is that enough? Or at times of strain, we blow apart. Now, we, we almost lost it in the Civil War because we couldn't hold it together, even that thin level of agreement. But we did. But we did, at great Great cost and blood and treasure that Professor Gelzo could tell us all about. I believe Professor McPherson said 750,000 deaths in a, in, a, in a country with a much smaller population than ours. And now, of course, we're so polarized on so many profound moral issues. I mean, issues that both sides regard as, mm -hmm. as, as human rights uh, issues. Uh, so what do you think our prospects are? <laughs> prospects are good. I mean, we've the Constitution has endured for nearly 250 years at this point. Um, we are American people. I mean, and it was constitutional arguments. Um, the Civil War is complex, and I am not a Civil War historian. But the um, part of the arguments, you know, part of, part of Lincoln's rationale was constitutional, that it was unconstitutional to secede. He didn't want to say or ever or concede that the South could just leave. Um, it survived. I think it's very significant that the Constitution survived the Civil War and that we still have it. I do think 
as I said at the end of the talk, that it requires a commitment to constitutionalism. I mean, if we start throwing it aside, if we start saying that you can make expedient decisions, I, I was in visit, I, I will not name the country, the country shall be nameless, but I was in another country with a constitution um, that is written um, and more recent than ours, but clearly not as robust. At the time that I was there, the president of this country was making some policy decisions that just had to do with roads and highways. I mean, it wasn't anything controversial, but he clearly lacked the power to do it. All the people were rejoicing in it, though, because they were getting some good roads and highways. So they were really happy with the policy. And I said, don't you care that you know he clearly doesn't have the authority to do this, that it was supposed to go through a different procedural process? And they didn't. Um, I think if we got to that point and we welcomed um, our public officials flouting constitutional constraints for the sake of popular political ends, then I don't know if it would last because we, we need something to bind us together with the diversity that exists. Well, there you have it. Judge Amy Coney Barrett on the Constitution as our story. I went ahead and put a link to the lecture in the show notes so you can watch the lecture and hear the question and answer session from the live audience we had back in 2019. It was such an honor to have Judge Barrett with us at the Madison program. I think I speak for all who know Judge Barrett when I say that not only is she an impressive jurist and legal mind, but she's an even more impressive person. I will go ahead and bring things to a close there. I hope you all have an excellent Constitution Day, and I hope to have you back with us next time, here on Madison's Notes.